This is by far the strangest Easter sermon I've ever preached. Usually Easter morning finds us pulling out more chairs in anticipation of the influx of visitors that we'll receive. Usually Mike is putting the finishing touches on a soaring and triumphant worship service. And on Easter morning, you'll find him rushing around trying to make sure that every element is perfect. Usually on Easter morning, the church is gathering together with an extra spring in its step. People are dressed up just a little bit nicer. And there's an anticipation of the passionate celebration about to take place. Usually Easter Sunday is a foretaste of the glory that is to come. But not this year. This year is different. It's Wednesday morning. I'm preaching to a camera in an empty Connect Center. On Sunday morning, the church will be scattered, not gathered. There will be singing anthems of victory, songs of resurrection, but those songs will be brought to them via a a lyric video. The voices of the saints will not be lifted up together in worship of our risen king. Sunday morning will find the church in their living rooms, gathered with their families, probably in jeans and a t-shirt. And it's nice, it's relaxed, but it's not the same. It's not the church. And it's no substitute. What has caused this strange set of circumstances? Well, there is a virus spreading like wildfire for which there is as yet no cure. And it's killing Americans by the thousands. And essentially, it has brought life as we know it to a grinding halt. Now, I'm not an alarmist. I like to think of myself as a realist. The situation is serious, but it's not unheard of. There have been pandemics before. There will likely be pandemics again. But the fact of the matter is that this Easter finds our church in the midst of a tribulation. We face an uncertain future in terms of our health, in terms of our economy, in terms of our jobs. We know that life will go on, but it won't be the same. Some things will be forever altered. And I think that it is because of this context of tribulation that when I was praying about what to preach this Easter Sunday, the Spirit directed my soul to the book of Revelation. For Revelation was written to the church of this present age, which is a church of tribulation, an age of tribulation. Revelation was written to prepare the church to persevere through the trials of this age with a steadfast faith in Christ. The book of Revelation is magnificent. It's one of my favorites, but it's not easy. It was written in a different style than much of the rest of Scripture. It's not written in a straightforward narrative such that it can be interpreted in a straightforward and literalistic manner. Rather, it's written in what is known as an apocalyptic style that uses graphic, often grotesque images and symbolism, and it must be interpreted as such. It is dense with scriptural allusions, and so you have to interpret it with one eye on the Old Testament and another eye on the Gospels. But while Revelation is difficult, it is not impossible. It was meant to be understood, and it was meant to be a source of courage and conviction and consolation to the church as it perseveres through this final act in the grand drama of redemptive history. 
What we find in the book of Revelation is the unfolding of the last days. And when I use that phrase, last days, you shouldn't think of a time only just prior to the coming of Christ. When the Bible uses the term last days, it's referring to the last stage of redemptive history, a stage which began with the first coming of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, and which will conclude at his second coming his return in salvation and judgment at the end of the age. In other words, Revelation is not primarily about the future. It's primarily about the present. It begins with seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Churches which in many ways represent the church of this present age, a church which is sometimes more faithful and sometimes less. Then comes the opening vision of the heavenly throne room where John sees the Lord seated upon his throne, ruling and reigning over all of history and all of creation in absolute sovereignty. And where he sees the slain yet standing lamb who by his blood has ransomed a people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And who by his resurrection has conquered sin and death and hell so as to be worthy to take from the hand of him who sits on the throne the scroll of destiny, which is the record of God's predestined judgments and decrees, and to break its seals and unfold the final chapter of history. What follows after the chapters 4 and 5 then are the contents of this scroll of destiny. Seven cycles of judgment, each describing in their own way the tribulation of this age and the perseverance of the saints through that tribulation. And each cycle culminating in Christ's victorious return in salvation and judgment. The final vision of Revelation then mirrors that opening vision of the heavenly throne room. And it's the vision of the new Jerusalem and of the eternal state. Revelation then concludes as it began with a final word of warning and an encouragement to the church to persevere in its faith, to keep the words of this prophecy and to look for and long for the imminent return of Christ. But at the head of this magnificent book filled with all of these magnificent, sometimes terrifying visions is an opening vision of the Son of Man. And at the core of this opening vision are these words from his lips, words that we desperately need to hear today. He says to us, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And herein lies the main point that I want you to get from today's message. The contents of this book are terrifying. The tribulation of this age is severe. The four horsemen of Revelation 6 have been galloping across this earth for some 2,000 years now, bringing conquest, war, famine, and death in their wake. And the church has had to endure it all. We in the United States are so myopic and sheltered in our perspective In this little corner of the world, in this little tiny window of history, the church in America has enjoyed relative peace and prosperity. But our experience is not the norm throughout church history. Revelation reminds us that the normative experience of the church of this age is one of trial. It's one of tribulation. It's one of battle and blood. It's one of persecution and perseverance, one of murder and martyrdom as we await the return of the king. That's a pretty apt summary of Revelation. But, and here's the point, when Jesus says to John 
in Revelation 1.17, fear not. He isn't talking about tribulation. He isn't talking about persecution. He isn't talking about the four horsemen. He isn't talking about the bowls of wrath and the plagues. He isn't talking about the images and the visions to come. There is something more terrifying in the book of Revelation than tribulation. There is something more dreadful than disease. There is the prospect of appearing before the Son of Man in his unveiled glory. Beloved, this Easter morning, I think the Lord would have us to lift up our eyes from the present circumstances, from the present tribulation, and to look full on at the vision described in this opening chapter of Revelation. Because if we can learn to fear the risen Son of Man more then we fear the tribulation of this age. And if we can overcome that fear through faith in him who died and is alive forevermore, then there will be nothing left to fear. And we can face anything with a confident, steadfast, persevering faith, be it beasts and dragons, persecution and plagues, wars and rumors of war, or anything else contained in the pages of this book that is to come upon the church and is to come upon the earth. Today's passage divides neatly into three distinct sections. Verses 9 through 11 describe the context of this opening vision. Verses 12 to 16 describe the content of the vision. And verses 17 to 20 describe the consolation of the vision. So we begin with the vision's context, which we can find in verses 9 through 11. And the main point to see is that this vision comes to John, who identifies himself as one of us. He's our brother. He's our partner in the tribulation. It comes to John while he is enduring circumstances that are very similar to our own. And he is explicitly commanded to write down what he sees and send it to the churches. First to the churches of Asia Minor, but by extension to the entire church of this present age, namely to us, to First Baptist Nixa this Easter morning. In other words, the vision of the Son of Man is for us today. Beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. There are three important points I want you to note about these verses, points that link John directly to us, to First Baptist Nixa this Easter morning. First, in verse 9, John establishes that he is a sharer in the same sufferings that we are enduring. John begins by identifying with the congregations to which he is writing, specifically to the churches of Asia Minor, but by extension to the entire church of this present age, including ours. And he does so by calling himself their brother and their partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Note this carefully. Look at verse 9. John did not consider the tribulation to be a future event confined to some seven-year period between the supposed rapture of the church and the return of Christ, as is the case in some popular constructions of the end times calendar. For John, the tribulation, and note the definite article there, it's not a tribulation, it's the tribulation. The tribulation was a present reality. He was enduring it at the end of the first century, just as we are enduring it at the beginning of the 21st century. 
According to Jesus and the apostles and the entirety of the New Testament, this entire age will be marked by tribulation. Which means that what we at First Baptist Nixa are now experiencing is not new. It's not unique. It is simply the normative experience of the church throughout these last days, both John's church and our church. So John writes to us as a sharer in our sufferings, as a partner in our tribulation. And he was writing to remind us of our mutual share in the kingdom of God, as well as the patient endurance that is in Jesus. Those three realities, tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance, together belong to the church throughout this age. Throughout this age of tribulation, Christ is building his kingdom, and his church is called to faithful perseverance, even unto death. We are called to persevere because, as Revelation makes so painfully clear, we are at war. And our enemy is not flesh and blood. It's not even a virus. Our enemy is a dragon. And the dragon has declared war on the saints. Now he makes war upon the saints in different ways. For some, he unleashes the beast to persecute the saints and put them to death. For others, he unleashes the prostitute, Babylon, the worldly city. In order to lure the saints, the church, into compromise with the world, with its riches, its pleasures, its sins. Either way, whether persecution or compromise, it's part of the tribulation of this age. COVID-19 is part of the tribulation. As was the Black Plague of the 14th century or the Spanish Flu of the 20th century. Any trial that results from the judgments decreed in this book are part of the tribulation. For John, that meant exile on Patmos because of his preaching of Christ. For us, it means enduring the plagues and the famines of this age. Either way, it's tribulation. So we are partners with John in the tribulation, and we are partners with John in the kingdom which Christ first inaugurated at his first coming, which he is expanding throughout this age, and which he will consummate at his return. And we are partners with John in the call to persevere in faith by the grace and the power of Jesus. So John identifies himself with us as a sharer in our sufferings, namely the sufferings that are part and parcel of the tribulation of this age. Second, John establishes that he's a sharer also in our common salvation. He identifies himself as our brother and our partner in the kingdom. Again, there are not many kingdoms. There is one kingdom. In Revelation, there are, there are t- always two sides in this ongoing conflict. There are the kingdoms of this world that are ruled by the God of this world, that are inhabited by the people of this world, who live their lives according to the ways of this world. And on the other side, there is the kingdom of Christ, which is ruled by the slain yet standing sovereign lamb and are inhabited or is inhabited by the people whom that lamb purchased with his own blood, who follow his commands faithfully. You're either a citizen of the kingdom of this world, or you're a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. And there is no middle ground allowed in the book of Revelation. The kingdom of Christ was inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Jesus, When the lamb was slain to redeem his people. We read in Revelation 5 and verse 9. And they sang a new song saying. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign 
on the earth. That's what Jesus was doing when he died upon the cross. He was purchasing a people for God and he was establishing his kingdom. The kingdom of Christ will then be consummated, concluded, finished, perfected at Christ's triumphant return. Revelation eleven fifteen. And the seventh angel blew his trumpets, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So John identifies himself with us by establishing that he's a sharer in our sufferings. He's a sharer in our salvation. Finally, he's a sharer in our scriptures. In verse 10, John says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day when he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, the Lord's day is a reference to Sunday, the first day of the week, which from the very beginning, Christians sanctified as a kind of new covenant Sabbath, a day that they set aside for corporate worship, a weekly celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, whether John was alone on this particular Sunday or whether he was gathered with other Christians on the Isle of Patmos, we don't know. In any cases, he tells us he was in the spirit, which on the basis of the the use of that phrase and one similar to it in in Ezekiel and, and even in other places in Revelation, it seems to be some sort of ecstatic trance in which John received the visions described in this book. And the Spirit gave John this revelation in order to equip us, the church, for perseverance in the tribulation. The voice like a trumpet instructed John to write down all that he saw in a book and send it to the churches of Asia Minor. That book is what we now know as Revelation. Now, again, we should understand these seven churches as representative of the church, the church of the last days. So what we find in verses 9 through 11 establishes the relevance of this vision for First Baptist Nixa today. And it does so by establishing that John shared in the same sufferings. He, because of persecution owing to his faithful witness to the gospel, we simply by being the church in the world that is enduring the just judgments of God in this age. And it's because of his sufferings that John found himself in exile, away from the gathered church. Again, not so different from us. John also shared in the same salvation. He, like us, was infallibly ransomed, purchased by the blood of the Lamb, and gathered into that kingdom as priests to God who will reign with Christ forever. And finally, he shared in the same scripture. The Spirit gave him visions for the churches, for us, in order to equip us to persevere in faith. So it is right and it is fitting that we look to Revelation this morning, especially this Easter morning when our church is in the midst of a tribulation. It was written for us, by one of us, in the context of tribulation, in order that we would not fear, but rather would persevere to the end, no matter what. When we move now to the content of this vision, which are found in verses 12 to 16, what is it that John sees? And how does what he sees help us not to fear, but rather to persevere? John says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw several golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The images of this passage are a combination of Old Testament images that are found in Zechariah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. I just want to walk through them to give us an idea of what is being conveyed 
by means of this vis- these uh, images. The first thing John sees when he turns around is seven golden lampstands. Now, when you think of lampstands, you shouldn't think of that ugly thing in the corner of your grandmother's living room. Rather, you should think of a Jewish menorah. The image comes from Zechariah chapter 4, where Israel is pictured as a menorah with seven lamps representing the Holy Spirit by whose power that lampstand, again, Israel, shines forth, which in Zechariah's day was a reference to the Spirit granting to Israel the strength to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. In Revelation, John sees not one, but seven lampstands. And the lampstands, according to Jesus in verse 20, represent the seven churches. So the lampstand is symbolic of the church. Just as in the Old Testament, the lampstand in Zechariah was symbolic of Israel. And I think the implication is clear. The church is now the true Israel. The new covenant people of God who shine forth by the power of the Holy Spirit with the glory of God. John then sees one like a son of man, which is a reference to Daniel's vision of the son of man in Daniel 7. Where he writes, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came He ascended to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I take this to be a reference to what happened when the crucified and risen Lord Jesus ascended through the clouds to the right hand of the majesty on high and received from God all authority in heaven and on earth. And now that risen and exalted son of man has appeared to John with a revelation for the churches, for us. John sees the son of man standing in the midst of the lampstands which Jesus himself again identifies in verse 20 as the churches. These images, in other words, signify Jesus's active, ongoing, attentive presence among his churches in the midst of their tribulation. And what is he doing among his churches? Well, the descriptions that follow can be divided really into three categories, each representing a distinctive role that Jesus presently fulfills in and among his church. The role of priest, the role of king, and the role of judge. Jesus is described as being clothed with a long robe with a golden sash about his chest. These images come from Daniel 10, verse 5, and they refer to the sacred garments that were worn by the high priest. The idea seems to be that just as the priests of the old covenant tended to the lampstands in the temple, right, ensuring that the light never went out, trimming the lamps, making sure that they were always burning, so does Jesus, the great high priest of the new covenant, tend to his new covenant lamps, which are the churches. Jesus, the great high priest of the new covenant temple, which is the church, trims the lamps. He purifies, he refines, he sanctifies his church in order that it may continue to shine forth with the glory of God. John says in verse 14 that the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow which picks up the imagery of the ancient of days in Daniel 7, 9, and it speaks to the son of man's divine wisdom. His eyes were like a flame of fire, which comes from Daniel 10, 6, and speaks to Jesus's ability to see through the outward appearances and to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. His gaze, in other words, burns through our masks, through our facades, through our hypocrisies. It unveils and lays bare the true motives and the desires of our heart. Verse 15, John says, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, which also comes from Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, and speaks to his purity and his righteousness. 
The idea is that the feet of the Son of Man have tread through the furnace of suffering and have emerged on the other side with a deep and radiant gleam. And his voice was like the roar of many waters, which comes from Ezekiel 1.24 and Ezekiel 43.2 and speaks to his power and his, um, his majesty and his authority to command. Finally, in verse 16, John says that in his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, the Son of Man reveals in verse 20 that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And and the meaning of that statement is is something of a mystery. It recurs in the uh, letters of, of to the seven churches in Revelation. Each of the letters are actually sent to the angels of the seven churches. And there's a lot of debate as to what that means. But the point of the image is plain enough. The Son of Man holds the stars in his right hand, which clearly speaks to his authority to command the angelic host as the king of heaven, particularly with regard to their angelic ministry in and among his churches. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, which is based on Isaiah 11.4 and 49.2. The same image is picked up again in Revelation 19.15 when Jesus is seen as the rider on the white horse who is coming to execute judgment and wrath upon the earth. And so this speaks of his office of judgment. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength, which comes from Isaiah 60. And again speaks to the majesty and the glory of Christ. Just think about that. His face shining like the sun in its full strength. Have you ever tried staring into the sun? That's what it's like to look into the face of Christ. It's a fearsome sight that John sees. This is not the gentle carpenter of Galilee. This is not Jesus meek and mild. This is the risen and reigning Christ, resplendent in glory, awesome in power, terrible in judgment, sovereign in mercy. And I think what John wants us to do this morning, I think what the Spirit would have us to do this morning, is to look at Christ. Just look at Him. Look at Him. Your biggest concern is not COVID-19. Your biggest concern is not job loss. Your biggest concern is not even death. To worry about such things would be like worrying about burning your finger on a candle when you're about to be swallowed up by the sun. It seems that the way to overcome the fear of tribulation is to find someone more terrifying than the present trial. That seems to be the way that Jesus is preparing his church for tribulation. It's the same way that he prepared his disciples when he was going to send them out in the midst of wolves in Matthew chapter 10. He says, don't fear those who can kill the body. Rather, fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. Jesus is doing the same thing here in Revelation chapter 1. He's saying, don't fear the tribulation. Don't fear the famines and the plagues. Don't fear the dragon and the beasts. Don't fear the tribulation. Fear me. And I want you to take note of how John, the beloved disciple, the member of Jesus's inner circle, the one who was reclining against Jesus at the Last Supper, the one who spent more time with and perhaps knew Jesus better than any other man who has ever lived on the face of the earth. Notice the way he responds when after 60 odd years, he sees Jesus again face to face. Do they laugh and embrace like long-lost friends? John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
No amount of familiarity can prepare you to meet Jesus in the unveiled majesty of his divine glory. In the eternal ages to come, you will never get used to looking at him, to seeing him. Which is precisely why worship is the eternal vocation of the redeemed. Sometimes I catch myself worrying that I'm going to be bored in heaven. I mean, eternity is a really, really long time. And that troubles me because I know that I should delight in the thought of an eternity in the presence of Christ. But this vision in Revelation 1 reminds me that that fear is unfounded for a number of reasons, not least of which is that Jesus is not boring. And worshiping him will not feel like a duty or a decision on that day. When I see him as he is, as John says in 1 John 3, 2, that is, when I see him like this, worship mixed with reverent fear and awestruck joy will be the immediate impulse the irresistible impulse of every atom of my being. And it will be the only thing that will captivate and satisfy my soul forever. Look at him. Well, the son of man does not leave his beloved disciple fainting with fear. And he doesn't intend to do the same thing for us this morning. Verse 17b but he laid his right hand upon me and he said, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Despite the fact that Jesus' appearance is so terrifying that John immediately faints at the very sight of him, Jesus tells him, fear not. Now again, note this carefully. I, I don't want you to miss this or you will miss the whole point. John is not afraid of the tribulation. He's not afraid of persecution. He's not afraid of dying in exile on Patmos. John is afraid of Jesus. And so should you be. One way or another, you have to deal with Jesus. This Jesus. And either this Jesus, the Son of Man, risen and exalted and terrifying in glory, either this Son of Man is for you or he's against you. That's one of the major themes of Revelation. But in verse 17, Jesus lays his right hand upon John and he speaks three words of consolation. And my hope and my prayer by the Holy Spirit is that you would sense Jesus laying his right hand upon you this morning and uttering the same three words. First, he emphasizes his divine sovereignty. He says, I am the first and the last. This phrase is used three times in Isaiah to refer to Yahweh, the Lord. And a similar thought is expressed in the phrase Alpha and Omega, which is used a couple of times in Revelation to refer to Jesus himself. In fact, in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, Alpha and Omega and first and last are combined in reference to Jesus. In other words, Jesus is identifying himself as the eternally sovereign, divine Son of God who reigns as Lord of history. In other words, not only does Jesus have the authority to take from the hand of him who sits upon the throne the scroll of destiny and to break its seals and unfold its judgments, he was there when the scroll was written. 
The Son of Man was there in the hidden councils of the Trinity when the pages of history were written before a single day had dawned. So why fear the tribulation when the one who orders it, when the one who controls it tells you, fear not? Second, he points to his redemptive victory. He identifies himself as the living one who died and behold is alive forevermore. The fulcrum of the entire book of Revelation comes in chapter 5. John is in the heavenly throne room and he sees in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll. And he hears a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals? In other words, who is worthy to carry out God's righteous judgments and to bring history to its appointed end? But no one was found worthy, whether in heaven or on the earth or under the earth. And so John began to weep. Why? He's wondering, was it all for naught? Was the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, was he actually victorious in the garden? Did he actually succeed in destroying once and for all God's perfect creation when he dragged humanity down into the dust to die in exile and in shame and in judgment? Will there be no redemption for man? Will there be no reconciliation with God? Will there be no return to the garden? It's no wonder John weeps that no one was found worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. But then John hears a voice. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And John turns, undoubtedly expecting to see a warrior, a conquering king, the son of man with the sharp sword in his mouth and his face shining like the sun in its full glory. But instead, John sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. What does he see? He sees the crucified yet risen Jesus. He sees the Lord alive and glorious, yet still bearing in his body the mortal wounds. This is how the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, so as to be worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. By dying as a lamb and by rising again. By his blood, he has ransomed for God a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He bore their sins. He atoned for their guilt. He took away their judgment. And by his resurrection, he destroyed the power of death and hell. He shattered their authority. He revoked their claim over those for whom he died. The son of man died and behold, he is alive forevermore. And his victory assures the victory of all whom he has ransomed by his own blood. Therefore, he says to John and to us, Fear not. Third, he points to his absolute authority. He holds the keys of death and Hades. The image is that of a prison break. Jesus broke the chains of death. He tore the bars away from his dungeon cell. He demanded the keys of the prison, which Satan was obliged to hand over. And now he possesses absolute authority over life and death, over salvation and judgment. And he can release from the prison of sin and death and hell anyone whom he pleases. The one who says to you, fear not, possesses absolute authority over sin, death, and hell. 
I have two words of application from this text that I want to bring to you who are watching this morning. The first is a word to you as an individual. You must make a decision today. Either John is telling the truth or he isn't. Either he made the whole thing up for reasons known only to him or he experienced some psychotic hallucination that he imagined was from the spirit. But if he isn't telling the truth, if he didn't really see what he says he saw, then you can and should go about the rest of your day as normal. Eat lunch, take a nap, do whatever it is you were going to do, and forget what you have heard today. But if John is speaking the truth about what he saw, then this has immediate and ultimate relevance to you right now. If on the Isle of Patmos, John really did see the Son of Man in blazing and terrifying glory, and if that Son of Man is eternally sovereign and was slain to ransom sinners by his blood and rose again in redemptive victory and possesses absolute authority over who lives and who dies, who is saved and who is condemned, then you must deal with that reality. John, the beloved disciple, the Lord's apostle, fell at the feet of the risen Christ as though dead. What then should be your response? The Jesus whom John saw, the Jesus described in this passage, cannot be ignored. He cannot be put up on a, on a spiritual shelf to be taken down and thought about a couple of times a year on Christmas and Easter. He is the son of man, the first and the last and the living one who died and behold is alive forevermore and who has the keys of death and Hades. If you are thinking rightly, if you're thinking clearly, if you're thinking rationally this morning, you won't fear COVID-19 or a weakened economy or job loss or any other form of the tribulation of this age. If you're thinking clearly, you will fear Jesus. And yet, fear is not the final word of this passage. It is a necessary step, but it is not the ultimate aim. The ultimate aim of this passage is fear not. But how? By remembering that the fearsome Son of Man is also the slain yet standing Lamb. He died, and behold, he is alive again forevermore. He is the Lamb of God who died to purchase by his blood sinners from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. People like John, people like me, and people like you. In Revelation chapter 7, John sees a great multitude gathered around the throne and they're clothed in white robes and they're worshiping the Lamb. And John asks, who, who are these people who are radiant with joy, who are holy and happy and whole, who are reconciled to God and are basking in the glory of His presence? And John was told, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And the question I need to ask you this morning is, will you be among them? If you would, you must take your robes, your filthy garments that are stained and polluted by the sins that you've committed in word and thought and deed, and you must wash them white in the blood of Christ. Now, that's a symbolic way. After, after all, that's the way Revelation communicates via symbolism. That's a symbolic way of saying you need to repent. 
You need to confess your sins, bring them to Christ and receive from his hand forgiveness and cleansing by grace through faith. So I encourage you, I plead with you to go to Christ now. Do not delay. Fall at his feet. Cry out to him and trust him. He died to purchase sinners like you. And behold, he is alive forevermore and he has the keys of death and hell and he will set you free. Finally, a word of application to our church, to First Baptist Nixa. Having assured John of his sovereignty, his victory, and his authority, Jesus says this, verse 19, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Throughout the tribulation of this age, those things that are and those things that are to take place after this, throughout the tribulation of this age, Jesus is present with his churches. He is walking among them. He is holding them in his nail-pierced hands. The divine son of man is our priest, our king, and our judge. And all of his divine sovereignty, all of his absolute authority, all of his redemptive victory is directed toward his church. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church when the son of man holds the keys. Therefore, First Baptist Nixa, The Spirit says to you today, fear not. Even though we find ourselves exiled, so to speak, on the Lord's day, unable to gather and worship together, I invite you this morning to join with the angels in heaven and with the redeemed gathered around the throne and to worship the Lamb nonetheless. Why? Because Jesus died. And behold, he is alive forevermore. And therefore, by faith, so are we. So First Baptist Nixa, fear not.